HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Linda Palaccio. I am starting my fall season today on A Taste of the Past, and hopefully you've been a listener to past episodes. I hope you continue listening and hope that you will consider, if you haven't already, becoming a member of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And I'm sure if you are like most of us, when you go shopping at the supermarket, you are looking perhaps for chicken for dinner, because we have chicken at least once a week, I'm sure, right? And what do you look for? The biggest, plumpest package of chicken? Did you ever consider what might be in the plump chicken? Well, we've heard, of course, if unless you've been living under a rock, you've been hearing a lot about um, you know, hormones and antibiotics and and uh, the the reason to buy sustainably raised chickens and organic chickens. But there's so much more that goes on in those chickens and other foods too that we really were never aware of and. How did chicken come to be in a package anyway? My guest today will explain all that and a few other things that perhaps you didn't bargain for. She is Marin McKenna. And Marin is a, an award-winning journalist and author who specializes in public health, global health, and food policy. She's a contributor to National Geographic, where she also helped launch the award-winning food site, The Plate and a senior fellow at Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. 
She's one of the stars of the 2014 documentary, Resistance, and her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore? That was, that was her TED Talk. That was the title of her TED Talk. And that kind of is, should be the title of today's show. <laughs> Marin's newest piece, uh, is, uh, newest book, is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. And it's not her first book on science and disease and medicines. She has two previous books, Superbug and Beating Back the Devil, both of which won top journalists and scientific awards. She, her piece on Modern Farmer... In, for the Modern Farmer on Beyond Organic Farm White Oak Pastures received a first place award from the Association of Food Journals. And I mention that in particular because White Oak Pastures was one of our first sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. Welcome, Marin. This, is, this, this book had me, had, had me staying up all night, actually. Um, <laughs> Thank you for having me. One, because I couldn't put it down. Number two, because eh, it kind of gave me the, the creeps from time to time. But um, as, as one of our, um, our good friends and often a guest here mentioned in a blurb about the book, if you think raising farm animals on antibiotics is nothing to worry about, Big chicken will change your mind in a hurry. That's Marion Nessel who said that. So tell us, chicken. I mean, chicken is chicken, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the story of big chicken is actually the story of how chickens, the animals, became chicken, the commodity. And, And it's my contention, and I think my research proves, that the reason that that happened fundamentally is our use of antibiotics. This is really the story of how we came to give antibiotics routinely to most of the meat animals on the planet and how we discovered that was a terrible idea. Uh, um, It's chicken, I mean, chickens, the little chickens, originally were basically raised to to lay eggs. Right, if you you think about... um, you know, probably our grandparents' time. I mean, maybe not here in New York City, but maybe even actually here, chickens would have been a thing that were out the back door, and they were there primarily to provide eggs. And for the most part, they were only eaten, at least the hens were only eaten, after they'd kind of reached the end of their useful Mm -hmm. life. So two or three years of running around and chasing after chicks, they would have been kind of old and stringy. Stew hens. Right, stew hens, exactly. (laughs) Spent hens, as they call them in the commodity markets. And The alternative to that was what we used to call spring chickens, which were the extra roosters that were hatched out and and weren't really needed for egg production because you only need at most one rooster in a flock. And so they would be fattened up and sold as delicious, very young chickens. Um, But and and the the amazing thing about that history that I that is sort of embedded in what I just described that I think we don't think about is that when chickens were a backyard phenomenon, they were the province of women. Yeah. They belonged to, to women who, who not only cooked the chickens, but collected the eggs and, and took them and sold them. They were the source of what the, that, that grandmotherly phrase, butter and egg money. That's right. And then, um, and then, then innovation happens and um, technology happens and chickens that, the chickens that were the province of women become chicken, the province of agricultural technology, which is primarily created by men. So there, there's a gendered aspect to the story as well as a, a technology aspect and an animal welfare aspect. And all of these, these um, 
dimensions of this story are what drew me into trying to tell the story of chicken and the story of antibiotics, which are really the same story. And it's it really is kind of a chicken and the egg kind of story, <laughs> to you know, to um, use that old pun. But it was accidental how chickens became initially how they how they became a commodity first by um, the, the woman who accidentally received too many right right, chickens right. In so order. the so the person who uh, you know poultry history says is the 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 generator of the modern chicken industry is a woman named Cecilia Steele Mrs Wilmer Steele who was who lived in um, in on the coast of Delaware and was married to a coast guard officer and she had a, an egg business and one day someone made a mistake in shipping her new chicks to grow up into hens to to lay eggs and she got 10 times as many as she expected and not really needing to raise that many eggs she decided to just fatten the hens and sell them in the way that they would previously have sold excess roosters Mm -hmm. and she did so well that her all of her neighbors uh, in the Delmarva Peninsula noticed, and Delmarva, which had been kind of the truck farming capital of the East Coast because it's very low and very fertile, very humid and moist, but very subject to weather um, and to, to the disruptions of weather and to storms that can ruin produce, Delmarva became the first chicken capital chicken of the capital. United States. Right. It didn't get to keep that title for very long because World War II came along, Delmarva being a place that has only a few roads in and out um, and was producing a lot of chicken, turned out to be very attractive to the armed forces who needed a regular source of chicken. And they essentially, national, not nationalized, but sort of, I don't know exactly what the word is, they grabbed hold of chicken production in Delmarva. And that opened the door for Georgia, where I live, I live in Atlanta, to to slide in under Delmarva and become, as it remains, the the capital of the modern chicken industry. The state of Georgia, if it were an independent country, would grows as many chickens as uh, it would be up there with China or Brazil. Wow, one point four billion chickens a year come out of Georgia. Well, it was it was not an easy um, an easy trick getting the consumers to. Uh, to continue buying so many chickens. I mean, the, the chicken industry took off, obviously, after that. Um, people got this special... It used to be a special treat. A ro- you know, a chicken, a roast chicken in the oven was, you know, not right. your Sunday usual. Sunday lunch or Sunday it dinner. Was a Sunday exactly. dinner, right, exactly. And then all of a sudden it became, as you said, a commodity meat. And now we go to the supermarket, we have chicken probably. Every family has chicken probably at least once a week. Oh, uh, uh, much more than that. Or more than that. Um, the average across all the population of the United States is that we eat 90 pounds of chicken per person per year. That's about twice as much beef. Wow. Um, and, and it's been ahead of beef since the 1970s. So that's, if you do the math roughly, that's about four ounces of chicken per person per day. So we are eating, ch- chicken is literally our daily diet in the United States, much more than any other meat. Uh, well, they wanted to make they, they big chicken, big pharma, big hag. You know, they wanted to make chickens more attractive to um, produce. One chicken was really, as you mentioned in your book, one chicken was really not enough for a fam- you know, family of four or six. And yet one chicken was too much for uh, just a couple, you know, two people without children. Um, so they, they decided they'd get these chickens out faster and bigger and quicker. So what there's, happened then? There's a really interesting sort of almost like a wave form in the history of chicken, which is that 
from the early from the 1920s, supply keeps getting in front of demand. And then the industry had to come up with ways to stimulate demand for chicken. So back in the 1920s, people figure out how to synthesize vitamins, which means that birds can now be kept over the winter in enclosed sheds, whereas before, once they were deprived of sunlight and of scratching around in the grass and in insects, they would get very sickly and die. Mm -hmm. After vitamins are added to the feed, then there's this discovery that if you give micro doses of antibiotics to chicken, they will they will fatten up and grow more quickly. Um, and and from that comes the recognition that you can cram lots and lots of animals into barns and feedlots when this gets to, to cattle and other size barns when it gets to pigs and produce them at a great rate of speed. <clears throat> All of that means that that periodically there has been way more chicken than people knew what to do with. And so we really owe the way we eat chicken these days, that, that four ounces a day, mostly not in the form of a roast chicken that you are yeah, carving right. up at the table, <laughs> but in chicken nuggets and all, all kinds of other further processed chicken. We owe that to a little-known professor at Cornell named Robert Baker, who in the 1960s was instructed to find ways to increase the market for chicken. And he, he went into a basement laboratory that Cornell gave him, and he came up with all the things that, that I think we now think of when we walk into a supermarket and right. see chicken, chicken cold cuts, chicken franks, chicken bologna, chicken ham, things like that, and his signature invention, what he called the chicken stick, chicken that stick. we now know as the chicken nugget. When I grew up, it was we called it city chicken because it was chicken on a stick and it was it, you know the ground up chicken well basically he was using the meat that was left over from car- on carcasses from other production right he, he, so yeah. he kind of copied the idea of the fish stick right which was a world war II invention but fish sticks if you look at them carefully are actually sawed out of intact muscle well, the mm. whole problem with chickens was that there wasn't all that much intact muscle on a bird, even though chickens, because of both antibiotics and precision nutrition and alter genetics, were getting fatter and fatter and fatter. If you were to carve the equivalent of fish sticks out of the breast of a chicken, you'd only get a couple. And Baker was the son of Depression-era uh, depression farm family, and he hated waste. And so he figured out the way to... Uh, he figured out what we'd now call manual, uh, sorry, automatic deboning to get all the flesh off the carcass. And he packed all that extra flesh into these things he was thinking up. And so that's how we got the, um, what I think the technical term is comminuted meat in a, a chicken nugget today, which mm. is both chunks of muscle and also much more um, finely chopped. Compressed and chopped say. meat, yeah. Of course, McDonald's didn't get their hands on that until... When like well, when did they first come out with the McNugget? Uh, I believe it's Early 1980. 80, is right. the is the McNugget right? Yeah. Which which gets its impetus. Now, no one can prove absolutely for sure that that <clears throat> that the McNugget was inspired by Baker, but the people at Cornell believe that that all of his stuff was published for free because Cornell is a public university, and it went into the archives of every food service and food production company in the country. And at some point, someone probably pulled that out of the archives and said, oh, look what we could do with this. <laughs> but the other thing that that gave McNuggets their impetus and, and also is really important to the story of chicken is that in 1977, we got the first dietary guidelines for Americans from the federal government, which recommended 
that Americans eat less saturated fat. It was and kind of the start of that war against fat that right. we've been locked in ever since. And that was immediately interpreted as an instruction to eat less red meat. And chicken was the obvious answer. And that's what started us on the extraordinary wave of chicken consumption, especially the boneless breast yes. that we're still kind of locked in today. So in order to raise those plump breasts that people would want to buy and would serve, you know, would make the, the, the entire dinner, you had to fatten them up. Now, antibiotics, you said this, they started, the antibiotics in the feed started, that was quite early, this, um, the first and it was a little bit. It's 1948. Yeah, yeah. was it 1948? 1948. The, the aromyosin? Uh, <laughs> right. Aromyosin. So, so um, to put this in context, uh, we don't think of this, I think, because we were all born within the antibiotic era, but the mm -hmm. antibiotic era isn't really very old. Um, it, the, it, the antibiotic era really starts in 1928, when Alexander Fleming notices that something is killing the dishes of bacteria that he has in his laboratory in London. Something's blown in the window, and that something turns out to be penicillium mold, which excretes natural penicillin. But the the drugs that that start the antibiotic era, including penicillin, all arrive between about 1944 and 1948. Mm -hmm. And one of those is a drug that its manufacturer called oreomycin, but the generic name is chlortetracycline, and it was the first of the tetracycline class of drugs. And that's where this whole practice of giving antibiotics to meat animals traces back to is that the manufacturers of oreomycin or chlortetracycline, which was a company called Letterly Laboratories just outside New York City, wanted to find another market for their new drug. So almost immediately after it was patented for human use, their chemists trial using tiny doses of antibiotic contained in essentially the manufacturing waste that they're going to throw away anyway. They trial it in chicks, along with a bunch of other supplements. Just um, mix it in with their feed, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and the chicks that get the oreomycin residue gain three times the weight of any other chick. And within five years, farmers in the United States are giving 500,000 pounds of antibiotics a year to their livestock. It takes off so fast. Well, we can only think about... Oh that going then into our system. Although the connection between why they were growing so much bigger, so so much faster, is still kind of a little, I mean, a little bit of a mystery. Obviously, chicks get, as you said, they get diseases. They die off, particularly in the winter. Um, it's not like you're going to take antibiotics and get big. But <laughs> they obviously were fighting, in normal cases, probably fighting off other diseases that were stunting their growth a bit. So um, so this is subtle. So if you think about everything we've heard lately in the past couple of years about the microbiome, about the way that we live in a microbial world that coats everything in our surroundings and coats us and also is inside us, you know, that our, our guts are, are uh, the home to populations of bacteria that vastly outnumber those, the actual cells in our bodies. What Growth promoter antibiotics, as they came to be called, what they really do is that they're, they're given to animals in feed and water, tiny doses, much smaller than would cure an infection. And they perturb the gut microbiome. They change the mix of bacteria that live in the animal's guts in such a way that they affect how nutrition is taken up out of the animal's feed. And so it very quickly became a practice that farmers could either grow animals to the same weight faster using less feed, or they could 
they could they could spend less money on feed and get animals to the same weight, or they could grow them to faster and get them turn more cycles of animals through their barns. Um, I mean, it was a practice that seemed to have no downside. Yeah. It, it used things that the um, the antibiotic industry wasn't at first really planning on using. It benefited farmers. It expanded the meat economy. It took a decade or two before people realized that this really did have a downside that no one had predicted, which was that using antibiotics in animals in that manner created antibiotic-resistant bacteria that didn't stay with the animals but moved out into the environment and eventually moved to people who had no connection with farming and threatened human health. Well, it's, it is... I mean, it certainly um, had that upside initially. I mean... I think you mentioned in the book a statistic that in, by 1954, a billion chickens went to market. Um, you're looking at me like, you don't remember that one. Maybe you <laughs> um, <laughs> I, a lot of numbers in my book. I'm <laughs> sure. It was you know, something I picked out of you know, one of the chapters. Well, so, but, I mean, today in the United States, we produce almost 9 billion broiler chickens billion. a year. But That's then, ridiculous. when yeah. it was still new, it was, yeah. it was something new. It, it was very, very fast. But there. you mentioned that there were still, so there were these other created resistant um, bacteria that that lived outside of the chickens. The chickens were okay, but lived outside of the chickens. Right. So what happens is, um, as, you know, we all have these these communities of bacteria in our guts, every living thing does, and the, the antibiotics that were given to the animals in their feed and water go into their guts, affect the bacteria there, and then one of two things happens. Either those animals go to the slaughterhouse and we disassemble them to make them into meat. And in the process of doing that, the contents of their guts gets on the meat. So those resistant bacteria are on the meat as it goes into packaging, as we carry it home to our home kitchens or to restaurant kitchens. And now, if we all ran our our home kitchens like microbiology labs and sloshed bleach everywhere Mm -hmm. and cooked things until they were carbonized black we probably wouldn't be at that much risk. But of course, no one does that, right? And so the fl- either the you might contaminate your hands or a counter or um, a cutting board or a knife or cooking utensils. And so those bacteria enter our home environments or the environment of a restaurant kitchen. The other thing that happens is that while the animals are still living, those those resistant bacteria in their guts exit their guts with their manure right. and then might end up in a manure lagoon if it's a pig farm or in the heap of manure litter that gets raked out of a chicken house, as they're called. And then the bacteria pass into into storm runoff, into groundwater. They blow away with dust on the wind. They may contaminate the clothing or the skin of farm workers. They may contaminate the local environment around farms. There's really good research now in places that have heavy chicken um, raising, such as North Carolina, for instance, that living near industrial-scale farms puts you at higher risk for contracting an antibiotic-resistant infection, even if you have no contact with that farm at all. Oh, I was reading even, like, driving behind a poultry truck. A chicken truck, yeah. yes, Ooh. which I, I have to say I have done a lot in the past couple of years. I don't particularly recommend it. But yeah. I have been, you know, in Delmarva and in, in Georgia and in North Carolina um, and, and gone in search of chicken trucks. And uh, they... They leave a very, in addition to the dust blowing off them and the very unhappy-looking chickens on them, they leave a very distinctive signature, which is a kind of a, a sort of um, surf of 
discarded feathers along the side of the road. Mm-hmm. It looks at first like it's snowed, hmm. and that's that's how you know that the trucks have gone by. Wow. <laughs> uh, the, another uh, another um, well, a couple incidents happened that raised people's awareness and eyebrows, aside from scientists saying, hmm, maybe this isn't so good. But suddenly there were outbreaks of disease. Yes, there were salmonella cases before, but not to the extent, well, the one that you opened the book with, I have to say, you're, it's a lot of scientific information, but you're a very good storyteller. So it makes Thank this you. information so easy to read. That's, That's why I couldn't I'm put so it I'm so happy down. to hear yeah. that. Thanks. <laughs> it, it really does flow. Um, and the story that you open with, of course, is a, a salmonella outbreak, which is later. Um, so we have to get back to what was making this strain of salmonella so resistant. So the, something that you've sort of uncovered. The outbreak that you're describing is uh, the, the outbreak that starts the book is an outbreak of uh, antibiotic-resistant salmonella that occurred from 2013 to 2014. It was investigated by the Centers for Disease Control and was tracked back to one single very large chicken processing company that kind of dominates the trade in the West Coast, which is a company called Foster Farms. Um, more than 600 victims were identified in that outbreak in 30 states and territories. And the CDC estimates that the multiplier of diagnosed cases in a foodborne outbreak versus cases that of people who never go to the doctor or never get the appropriate test done can be more than one in 30, mm. which means that there were probably thousands of victims of this outbreak. And I tell the story um, of this one particular guy who was a victim of this outbreak who had a very unusual um, set of symptoms, not the usual sort of gut distress, but a profound um, disruption of his circulatory system by inflammation, which caused him to almost lose a leg. Um, I tell that story in the start of the book, not so much because this outbreak was exceptional, but because it was not. It, it happens to be a very well-researched outbreak, but it's an example of things that happen in the United States and around the world every day because by adding antibiotics to food production and not keeping track of the consequences, we have put ourselves at risk of, of peril like this, mm-hmm. both in large identified outbreaks and in individual cases of foodborne illness that never get diagnosed. And one of the consequences of our learning to give antibiotics to animals, not just for growth promotion, but to protect them against the diseases that occur as we crowded them together, is that outbreaks of illness, as as food production became both more um, consolidated and, and shipped its products over longer distances, those outbreaks have become very separate in space and in time from the places that cause the outbreak. And it makes it much more difficult to actually to trace track the, trace the evidence, back. the trail yeah. of evidence back. Mm. Um, and so so this, this poor guy, Rick Schiller, who has somewhat recovered from his experience, you know, almost lost his leg, was has been left with arthritis and with circulatory problems and with um, diverticulitis and a bunch of other things, you know, from this, this illness uh, four years ago now. Um, he happened to have a very, a very, well-documented case that also had been part of a lawsuit, and so I felt like his documentation was very solid. But he is, he, he is emblematic of thousands and thousands of people that are victims of this push to increase productivity by means of antibiotics that, um, 
that, that we brought into meat production because of chicken. All right. We're going to continue this, this discussion because there's a lot more interesting information when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains. But when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that that's what gives that that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Marin McKenna, and she's the author of Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. And Marin, we were talking about people... Um, realizing that perhaps all this use of antibiotics might not be a good thing because doctors and physicians all knew that if you, well, Fleming, even when he first um, uh, produced the, the penicillin antibiotic, warned that, you know, don't, don't overuse it. It could desensitize the certain strains of bacteria to the effectiveness of the fighting action of the antibiotic. Um, it's interesting because then it, antibiotics were available over the counter, which was, you know, I think they they still might be in some several countries, but in some parts of the world, yeah, in some yeah. parts of the world. But what it wasn't until I don't know, it wasn't until quite late that um, maybe mid fifties that penicillin was by prescription only. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at the very early history of antibiotics, which, you know, in, in the the, very, the first few years are, are only medical uses, and then you know, agricultural use comes in when the FDA approves it and gives a license to it in 1951. There was so much enthusiasm for antibiotics, and I guess, you know, that makes sense in retrospect because... Uh, you know, they used to call antibiotics miracle drugs, mm -hmm. and, and they really were. I mean, people used to die horrible deaths of fulminant infections. My own great uncle, actually, who was a, a fireman in, in Manhattan, um, he in 1938, he was sort of scratched and bumped uh, on a day off in the firehouse. And he, within a, the course of a week, he developed septic shock. Mm. and died of it, um, a, a really horrible lingering death that was written up in what was then the daily newspaper in the Rockaways, where his parents were. And it was three years before the first test of first human test of penicillin, which was done in a guy who was incredibly ill, a British constable, from having scratched his face on a rosebush thorn in his garden. I mean, it's really hard to understand, I think, for those of us born within the antibiotic era, 
now incredibly vulnerable to infection than right. we used to be. And well, so when major- antibiotics arrived... Right. Majority of war deaths were... Exactly. Due to and infection. That, and, and that's yeah, what, you know, the, the push to, to make penicillin from an accidental discovery into a drug was partly because of the advance of World War II. Um, it really doesn't get developed until 1940. And the, the Alexander Fleming's collaborators actually smuggle it to America because England by 1940 is already involved in the war, whereas we aren't yet. And um, the funny thing is, though, you know, right at the beginning, in the midst of that crazy enthusiasm for antibiotics, as you say, people were just kind of tossing it into everything. I mean, it was in mouthwash, it was in lipstick, it was in, you know, throat lozenges. You could buy it over the counter. And yet, Fleming, before any of that happened, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in 1945, he said, we should be careful, we should use these conservatively. If we don't, then bacteria will become resistant and these drugs will lose their power. And no one listened no one to listened. him. Well, and another scientist, even later, um, uh, Marie Coates. Oh, so she is one of the lost she, heroines of this story. Uh, she warned about that, about right. the overuse as well, in 1962. Specifically in agriculture, yeah. yes. Now, specifically for agriculture, because just prior to that, something else had been done with antibiotics. It wasn't putting it in the feed, but it was in processing when it was getting packaged and ready to go to market. I can't, Tell us can't about this one. This story. So this is a what I what I believe to be a truly lost episode that I seem to have accidentally uncovered. So this is the story Another of Another Hero, CNN, the antibiotic search. Okay. This is the story of acronizing. And the company that is responsible for the, the start of growth promoter antibiotics, Letterly Laboratories, part of American Cyanamid, a big, you know, sort of post-war corporation, they are responsible for this as well. Looking for another market for their drug, they came up with the idea that after animals were already being given antibiotics for, um, for as growth promoters and to protect them against the conditions of farming, Letterly Laboratories has the idea to persuade meat and fish processors, so slaughterhouses and Mm -hmm. packaging houses, to dip raw chicken and fish into solutions of antibiotics and then to package them for sale with the raw antibiotic, the active antibiotic still clinging to the flesh. on the skin. I I think the listeners have to understand that prior to the late 50s or 60s, chicken was sold whole. It wasn't unless you bought it from a butcher and said, please quarter it or cut it into pieces. Chicken was sold whole. It wasn't packaged into individual pieces. Um, Although I remember my mother buying it in mid-50s, probably... It probably must have been late 50s. So I think if you went to a bespoke butcher, you know, we, there are so many other things that are going on, going yeah. on in the 50s and the post-war years. You know, there are there's the rise in, in much more meat consumption. There's also a change in retail, right? So that, that before, you know, bef- before the, the late 1940s, we don't really have the big supermarket right. chains in the same right. way that we do now. We had a few, like the, the A&P, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, you know, goes back, I think, to the beginning of the 20th century. But for the most part, supermarkets were a relatively local thing. Right. So you might have a local smaller supermarket that had in it a butcher, and they might get in chickens, and they might cut them up for you. But that sense that the chicken is a thing of disassembled parts that arrives 
at the market already completely wrapped up in a plastic in, package in, in styrofoam right. trays. Some some people in the industry actually call it styrofoam chicken. They're, <laughs> they're talking about the package, not about the flesh. Anyway, to get back to acronizing. So the idea behind acronizing, as in so many of the other things in this story, is sort of a it's an example of failing to anticipate unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So they think that if they dip this raw meat and fish in active antibiotic, they will be killing or at least retarding the growth of spoilage bacteria. Spoilage, yeah. And so it will be able to persist on the shelf on, in a cold case for weeks instead of days, which, you know, when I tell people the story, everyone makes exactly the expression that you just made. There's this sort of ex- instinctive Ooh. ick to it. Ooh, but, right. but, you know, and, you know, and it's yet another example of sort of like how science gets out in front of, of what would be a reasonable consumer expectation. So... Where, and where did the name come from? Acronized. So I, there are very few records left. Um, Letterly did have a drug called... Acromycin, uh. but it was not the drug they were using for acronizing. Um, so it, what they were using for acronizing was oreomycin, chlortetracycline. My intuition is that if you take the etymology of acronizing apart, cron um, um, is, is the uh, Greek, I think, for time, and a is a, uh, a prefix that indicates uh, canceling or negativity. So I think they meant that a thing that long, is acronized long shelf life. <laughs> is a thing that is timeless, yeah. that is, has been taken out of time. All right. Well, you even un, you you couldn't find records of this. In it's true. The FDA, so right? I, I stumbled across this. Um, I was reading all these these old um, science journal articles from the fifties and the forties, and I stumbled across a reference to one in a list of footnotes or citations, and it was titled "Antibiotics in Food Preservation." And I thought that's a little odd because mm-hmm. I've been what I've been reading about up to this point is food production. Food preservation is something different. So I went in search of this paper and I couldn't find it anywhere. It wasn't in any of the, the digitized banks of, um, of science journal articles. And I eventually tracked it down um, via an old, a, a seller of old books, an online seller of old books. And it turned out to be a paper with the, that had been presented at a conference at, in 1962 at what was called the University of Nottingham Easter School in Agricultural Sciences, which was a conference that happened every couple of years in England. And I didn't got, get a lot of play in the New did York not. Times. Yes, right? exactly. No play at all in the New York Times. And the conference proceedings, the collected papers arrived, beautifully packaged up in leather bound. Um, and I opened it up and there were all these papers to Antibiotics in preserving meat, antibiotics in preserving fish, antibiotics in preserving chicken, antibiotics allowing you to to ship meat into the center of South America where there are only a few trains, and 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 my mind was blown. Mm-hmm. And so from there I turned to um, to old databases of newspapers to see if anyone had written about it, and I found acronizing this process mentioned over and over again in grocery store advertisements. So in the kind of um, pen and ink art uh, ads that grocery stores used to run in local papers that would say things like, you know, ham on special this week, Mm -hmm. and we have pineapples today, and the mandarin oranges have arrived. There would be a little note on the bottom, our chicken is acronized. Don't buy your chicken unless it's acronized. The company, it turned out, after I did some more digging, the company um, had actually done what even today we would recognize as a very smart media strategy. They had gone to, they hired a Madison Avenue advertising firm 
And they, uh, they had gone to food editors around the country and tried to convince them that acronizing was this fantastic, modern, you know, looking forward kind of thing that was going to make food safe and shiny. And eventually, this, this advertising campaign put together big, gorgeous four-color ads for magazines um, with gorgeous bronzed chickens in them. Um, and they never mention antibiotics. They mm. say things like, acronized chicken is fresh and So we have sweet. no idea what this process exactly. is. Yeah. And, and then uh, a very unfortunate incident occurred, and there was an outbreak of... Right, of so there was a mysterious outbreak... Disease, of sores and... Of staph bacteria yeah. in, um, in slaughterhouse workers in Seattle in um, uh. the, the late 1950s that was solved by one of the first disease detectives of the CDC in their, their CDC um, disease detective corps, which began in 1951. And he traced it back to the use of acronizing, this antibiotic dip, in one particular slaughterhouse, um, and further back to the chickens that were being sent to the slaughterhouse, which had all been dosed with antibiotics. And the, those two together, those extra doses of antibiotics, had created a superbug that was infecting the arms and hands of the slaughterhouse workers. But I have to say that, I mean, that outbreak, that alerted, I think, I think alerted medicine that something was going on, yeah. but it wasn't that outbreak that shut acronizing down. Wow. What really shut it down was that by the mid-1960s, Consumers, everyday shoppers, are beginning to be suspicious of of additives of all kinds in their food, right. um, and they just generally slowly persuade. You can actually see it in like letters to the editor in some regional newspapers. People are writing in saying, "We don't understand what's going on with our chicken anymore. We are suspicious of how long this acronized chicken has been in the store." And and by the late 1960s, the FDA has withdrawn the license, and acronizing vanishes into history. Right. So they. Uh, did they they actually outlawed it? I mean, did the they, FDA well, they, prohibit they, they, the use they, of, uh, of withdrew uh, the package license that they had granted? Yeah. But antibiotic use within the feed before chickens are slaughtered that that is still that's still around. Right, right. So the FDA actually attempts to reverse that in 1977. Um, an activist new FDA commissioner, one of the the reformers brought in by the Carter administration, tries to shut down antibiotic use in feed and water for farm animals and is prevented by political interference. Big business. Uh, a congressman yeah. with, with uh, big agricultural connections threatens him and says that if he, if he attempts to hold the hearings that will expose that this is causing antibiotic resistance and is not safe, uh, this congressman says to the White House, he will hold the FDA's entire budget hostage. Wow. And, the, and the Carter White House, which has a lot of reforms on its plate, tells its new FDA commissioner to, uh, to let the subject go. But in all fairness now to everybody who's listening, a lot of the, the, the big industry, and particularly like you think of Purdue right away, they, they took this responsibility upon themselves and altered the use and, and to right. what so we it's, assume what, are what's safe. What's happened in the past couple of years is really interesting. I mean, when I first started writing this book four years ago, I thought it was going to be sort of an expose about how there's been this problem and everyone has known it's a problem and no one has moved to change it. And as I was writing the book, things actually started to change. So it turned from an expose to a sort of chronicle of cultural change. Well, then, we, but then we can talk about how it was used in other things, uh, you know, Beef and milk mm -hmm. uh, in in the cows mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in the milking machines through in industrialization. So in part we can blame it on the industrialization of of 
agriculture as well. Right. Well, I think that actually that antibiotics in some way create industrialization because Mm. they're the thing that makes it makes it possible to 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 increase the concentration of animals and and yet keep them safe um, to move animals through faster in a more high throughput fashion. I, I think all the things that we now critique about industrial scale farming really trace back to antibiotics, to, to treating animals sort of as widgets instead of as beings, to, to moving them through very rapidly, to, to making things very consistent and very safe, but, you know, kind of forgetting about flavor and forgetting about animal welfare, and, and all you brought things. up, Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and everyone's very, you know, very uh, observant, I think, when they go to the, the markets now and buying milks and make sure that there's no, you know, no additives, nothing, uh, hormones or, or antibiotics. Uh, although you can't trace some of those, but taste. Let's. You said flavor. What about fl- this? First drove you to, to sit up and take note to chickens too. Being in France, you mentioned. What about taste? What has this altered the taste of our chickens? Now I will tell you too. Anyone who goes and buys, you know, a, it'll be a lot more expensive. But you know, an organic, sustainably raised chicken. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay a lot more money, but you are going to notice a difference. So the book begins and ends with scenes of me <laughs> stuffing my face with delicious chicken. Um, and those scenes are there for a reason. Uh, the, 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 the opening scene is in Yes, she Paris. does eat chicken. I do, in fact, eat chicken. <laughs> and that's part of the point, is that I wanted, to make, I wanted to make the point that you can closely interrogate meat production and be an active critic of meat production, as it's conducted now, and still want to eat meat. Um, no disrespect to, to, to my friends and to animal advocates who are vegan, that I have great respect for vegans, but I don't think that we have to stop growing meat. And I, I mean, I don't think we have to stop growing meat animals to solve the problems of meat production. I think we can solve the problems of meat production and still have meat to eat. But what this, this, uh, this, encounter that I had with this chicken in Paris. I, it's sort of, I guess this is sort of a cliche that, you know, people go to Paris and they eat something delicious and their <laughs> eyes and their taste buds are opened to the reality of how food is different in the rest of the world. But it started me thinking that what we elevated in the United States when we decided to industrialize to such an extent is we, we elevated consistency and efficiency and reliability. So chickens are always going to taste the same, even if they don't taste like much. They're always going to be the same size. They're always going to be the same sort of color of flesh. But we kind of forgot about flavor. Flavor, right. And it's really, I think it's, you know, flavor, we are, are designed evolutionarily to, to seek out flavor because flavor indicates nutrition to us, and, and as well as being a source of pleasure in its own right. And for us to have somehow created a meat production system that forgot about flavor was something that I thought was really worth taking a look at. And though antibiotics don't make meat flavorless, antibiotics created the conditions in which we came to grow meat without regard to what it tasted like. And Mm -hmm. so that, to me, was worth looking at as well. Well, it is indeed an eye-opener in many ways. And, um, And we've come... You know, it's funny. I say we, we've come a long way, but yes and no. I mean, we, you know, we we came from the early days of you know. So then all of a sudden, mass producing and producing lots of chicken for everybody, and now we're scaling back again and saying let's go for quality and not quantity. And hopefully, we're in a good place once again. I think we're we are in a, a better place. place. And what what makes me think that is that just in the past couple of years, almost every 
a company that produces chicken, chicken is ahead of the other proteins in this, has started an antibiotic-free line. They've really started to understand that this is what consumers want. And what the, the, the tasks in front of us now are to convince cattle and pigs to go in the same direction and to convince the developing world that really needs its protein as its populations expand that they shouldn't make the same mistakes that we in the industrialized West made. All right. So should you pick up that package and wonder about what's inside of it? And should you be worried? Well, take a look at Marin's book, and, and you, might, you might think twice. <laughs> it's Marin McKenna, and the book is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Marin, thank you so much. There's so much more information about this, and we know from following uh, good practices in farming and sustainability and, and, and food in our world that these are all very important topics. Thank, thank you, you so much. much for having me. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.